kids get to stay here, yeah. Just stay put. No junior church today. We've been talking about work, and we've arrived at the last of this series. And uh, it's been a challenge as I prepared this series of messages as I think about work, because my tendency is to think about what we do as part of our, our employment to earn a living. And so I've tried to stretch beyond that in my own heart and my own mind and think about all the things that I do when I mow my lawn, when we wash the dishes at our home. Um, that's work. Any time that I expend resources to achieve some better means, I'm doing some kind of work. And so as we come to the last in the series, today we're going to be talking about um, not work as intended, but work as an ethic. So that, that one didn't, I didn't get the... Scripture references right, but it's work is an ethic. So how work is something that sets up as a part of the system of values in our lives. That's what an ethic is. And so uh, as we begin thinking about that, I want us to go back to something that we as followers of Jesus Christ have wrestled with historically, a thought or a theory that sometimes pulls us away a little bit from the intention of God and how he wants to work in us. So I'm sure that many of you have heard when preachers like me get up and they talk about salvation by works with an S on the end, works plural. And really what that is, is it means that there is a, uh, a mistake or a misguided theory that somehow the things that we do, the work that we do, is what saves us. And so as I've been thinking about this, you know, so salvation works usually in our minds, it's the good works. It's when I, you know, it's when I help the guy that is fallen on hard times. It's when I go up to the stranger who needs something and I have it and I freely give it to them. And we have a tendency to uh, live with this theory running through, coursing through our culture. And if you doubt that, I would suggest that you pay attention the next time you go to a funeral. The next time you're sitting with people who are grieving the loss of a loved one and listen to the words that are said. Now, it used to be years ago that at funerals, the only person who spoke was the clergy person, was the pastor. But in this day and age, you go to a funeral and there's a eulogy given, sometimes by a family member or a close friend. And at some funerals, they say, we just want to invite people to share their memories and let's enjoy the memories. And at some funerals I've been to and some funerals I've officiated at, I, I get a little nervous when they say, you know, we're just going to kind of have an open mic at the funeral. Now, I have to admit that what really drives my anxiety is that somebody comes up and goes, you know, I remember this guy and he was a jerk. Recently, there was a, 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 an obituary that went viral on social media. Some of you might have seen this. These children put an obituary to their mother, and it was horrible. But they published it in the newspaper, and they said, you know, this is our mom. She passed away, and she ended up having an affair with our father's brother and had a child with him and abandoned us, and we are not going to miss her. That was it. It was about that short. And, and it went viral because here, here are these 
adult kids that are being brutally honest that this is how we feel about mom. And so as a pastor at times when I'm officiating a funeral, I think, you know, is somebody going to come up here and go, you know, you don't really know this guy. And I'd be happy to let you in on all the dirty information. And you just go, oh boy, I I hope that never happens. It hasn't happened yet. But what has happened, it happens frequently in funerals, is somebody will come up and they'll say something like this. They'll come up and they'll say, you know, I remember this person and they were a good person and I know where they are. And so there's this kind of a subtle correlation between the kind of ethic they had in life, the kind of good things they did, and how that achieved for them some kind of eternal reward. That philosophy runs all through our culture, that if you're a good person, when you die, you will deserve a good reward. You deserve to go to heaven. And so this is a good person and we know where they are and we should be at peace because they got what they deserved. Here's what bothers me. And maybe it bothers you as well. Every time I think this is what I deserve, I seem to be reminded that I really don't deserve that. Dave Ramsey, you know, he's, he's, kind of codified this. He's come up with a little saying. When people say, hey, Dave, how are you? He says, better than I deserve. Better than I deserve. And so here's the thing. That, that kind of salvation by works, we know theologically from Scripture and the way our doctrine is built that that kind of falls apart. You don't get to heaven because you're a good person. You get to heaven because you are forgiven by God. You are covered by the blood of Christ. You are welcomed by his grace. And you are adopted into his family. And that's it. So, the good news is it's the grace of God. The bad news is serving at the food pantry last Friday didn't do it. Didn't get us there. But here's what happens. So that's salvation by works, where if we do good stuff, we, we get saved and we get to go to heaven. But we also operate with a kind of philosophy and a mentality in life that the things we do with our time the way we work and the way we are employed and the way we earn a living, that is actually what saves us. That's actually what gives us security and hope and peace and endurance for life. And so even though we don't talk about this very much, not nearly as much as the salvation by works with the S, salvation by work is I'm going to get up tomorrow morning and I'm going to go to my job and I'm going to get my paycheck and I'm going to pay my rent or I'm going to pay my mortgage and I'm going to pay my house payment and I'll get to survive another week and I'll keep going. And we have a functional salvation by going to work. Now, I'm not suggesting to any of you that you try a little experiment and go, well, if that isn't going to save me, I'm just going to quit going to work. You know, maybe unemployment's holier than this. <laughs> well, you're welcome to try it, and I'll pray for you. How's that? So, but we work with this functional philosophy of really, it's my paycheck that saves me. And we, we talk here in America in our social system of caring for one another financially. We talk about having a safety net. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, except that over time, many of us tend to get to a place where we think that is actually what's going to keep me from disaster. 
And I have to admit that I have friends and I have family that, that to them, how much money they have access to at any given time is really how safe they are in life. That's really the source of security. And so what this is, is, is we arrive at a place where our work is what keeps us. It's what protects us. It's what sustains us. And so as long as we can keep working, we'll be okay. And some of us have developed this, and we've, we've developed it out far enough, and we live paycheck to paycheck, so I have to keep working in order to be saved. And there is no buffer. There is no sense of security there because I've got to go in and punch that time clock or I am toast. In America today, they say that almost 50% of Americans are two paychecks away from being homeless. See, that's, that's what happens when we think our work is what sustains us. That's what keeps us. That's what guards us. And in doing that, maybe not so much earning our way to heaven as though we're doing good works, but we're earning our way to security by doing work that puts bread on the table. There's something healthy and helpful and distinctly uncomfortable about periodically being reminded that it is by God's hand that we are saved. That daily bread comes from him. And sometimes it's good for us to be put in these positions where we realize there's nothing I can do to get out of this. Never feels good. It's never comfortable. But when we get into that kind of position and go, okay, in order for me to get through this, it's going to take more than I can bring to bear. So that's kind of the philosophy that we're struggling with. And so we have developed this very subtle, very, um, very... Uh, unique kind of a hidden ethic that says you better work or you will die. Now there are some places in scripture that talk about that. The one who doesn't work doesn't eat. A workman is worthy of his wage. We understand those things but we as followers of Jesus Christ also understand that ultimately our sustenance comes from Christ himself. Amen. That's, that's where it comes from. And so we are not being saved by work. We might be sustained, we might be cared for by that, but we are not being saved by that. And so to help us with this, I, I want to remind you of what our ethics should be, and you're going to see this a few times this morning. Work is a way to make God famous. And when I say that, that's, that, that's sort of a contradiction to work is the way to make me safe. Work as an ethic is a way to make God famous. I'll come back to that. Now I want to look at scripture. In Ephesians chapter 2, this is just two verses long, but in Ephesians, Paul is writing, the Apostle Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says these things, and I've highlighted a couple of them in a couple of these verses because I think it helps us understand. Paul does a really good job of understanding how we are saved by God and what our response to that should look like, all right? So Paul says to the Ephesians, God saved you by his grace when you believed. Okay, that's, that's the anti-salvation by works. God saved you when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. There it is. Right out of scripture. 
So none of us can boast about it. Friday night, I was down there at the food pantry and I helped those people and God is going to take me home if anything happens. All right? None of us can boast about it. And then in, in verse 10, so then from that, for we are God's masterpiece, or another translation says, we are God's workmanship or craftsmanship. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, and here we go, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So God did this work in making us and, and in a continuation or a cyclical thing, it comes back and we keep going that he created us, he did this work in making us and as he renews us and recreates us in the grace of Jesus Christ, we get to do good things that he's planned for us. We get to do this kind of work. So our work ethic is not an ethic of, that's based out of, I need to do this for me. But as Christians, we want to reshape that and reform that and even rewire that because we want it to look like our work is something we get to do to honor God. It's something we get to do to bring him glory. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do good things that he planned for us. And, that, and so I'm just going to go back real quick. That is how... Work is a way to make God famous. By our work ethic, we bring glory to God. That brings people's attention to God. That brings them to the place where they say, he is really actually really quite good all the time. That's what we say. He is good. And we are making God famous. So let me jump ahead. Let's look at this salvation being a God's gift. So what God has done for us that enables us to be his children, to be adopted into his family, to know that we're taken care of as his children, is the work of Jesus Christ. Not the work of us, it was the work of Jesus Christ. We acknowledge that. We do that, we do this reminder every month when we get together here in worship and we share the Lord's Supper. And we're going to do that next Sunday. And we take the bread and we take this cup and we're reminded that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed and that broken body and that shed blood purchased for us a way out, the way out of the guilt of our sin. And we're forgiven, we're washed clean, we're set free and that's the work that Jesus did. Now, most of us in here have heard this over and over again, and we've accepted it, we've experienced it even, and we've told other people about that, and that's a great thing. And so we say, okay, Jesus went there, he hung on the cross, he suffered, he bled, he died, he got put in a grave, three days later, he rose again, and that act becomes the act of our salvation. It becomes the price of our sin. It becomes the open door to God's family. But here's what I want to do. I want to take that act, that historical moment, and think about how that then reshapes everything that follows. Everything that comes after that looks different. Have you ever, have you ever played with a prism? You know what a prism is? Usually it's a triangle of glass. But it's, it's some kind of angular glass. And when light hits a prism going in, it's just, it's just light. 
which we usually don't pay much attention to and seems quite unremarkable, but when a ray of light hits a prism, it goes through there and that ray becomes split or pushed apart a little bit. And when it comes out the other side of the prism, it's different colors. That's where we get a rainbow from. And so a rainbow is this incredible display of multiple prisms, scientifically speaking. Because what's happening is instead of being glass, it's water. It's transparent water. And the, the, the water is coming in the form of rain. And the light from the sun is going through the raindrops in the sky. And when it goes through the raindrops in the sky, it comes out the other side and splits apart into this wonderful array of colors. And, of course, we live... You guys heard me not too long ago kind of make fun of the flat earth theory people. Well, here's another one. We live on a sphere. And so... When it goes through the prism, it looks circular. This is why rainbows are in a bow and not in a plane. And you look at that, and most of us don't go, great prism, do we? We, we just look at that and we see this rainbow. We may be driving down the road and if you're like me and in my family, we're driving down the road and it's rained a little bit but the sun's out and all of a sudden there's a beautiful rainbow and somebody in the car, and I'm not going to mention who they are, starts raising their voice and becoming very demonstrative about how I need to pull over so they can take a picture. That's what happens. So here's what happens is the light has entered but... Until the light entered that moment of a transparent prism, it was just light. But at the moment of the prism, then it spreads out, it splits apart, and it shines in glorious color in wonderful ways. So take that illustration and think of it this way. The light of Jesus Christ entered the world, and at the moment of his sacrifice for us, we see a prism. The prism of the cross. And after the cross and after the grave, that light spreads and it's different and it's colorful and it's attractive and it, and it gathers our attention quite easily. So what God did in the moment of the prism is profound, it's earth shattering, there's nothing like it. But what follows is a continuation of the day of salvation. This is true for each one of us. When we encounter Jesus Christ that way and we have freedom from our sin, we are forgiven and we're washed clean, like I said, after that we are renewed. That's what Paul said in the scripture. We are people who are renewed or another way of saying it, we have been created, but then at that moment we are recreated. Jesus said it, that we were born and at that moment we're born again. That was terminology he used with Nicodemus. And what follows after being born again is different and beautiful. And in that what follows, we find that everything we do is given the opportunity to glorify the God of the prism, of the moment. So, what God does for us, it was not just at that day, on that day on the cross. But what God does for us is he saves us today and every day. Every day that follows. And so, 
here's something that I'm wrestling with and struggling with is how does God work salvation in me today? Now, I remember that day when I went forward. I went forward in a church. One of my friends was being baptized. I was, I think, eight years old. And one of my friends, he was a couple years older than me, he was being baptized that day. And at the end of the baptism service, the pastor said, if, if you haven't got faith in Christ, you know, and, and many of you have a similar story, I got up and went up to the front, and, and a family friend of ours came up and met me, Ian Harvey. And we, we stepped out the side door of that old church and went into a Sunday school class. And he sat down and he opened his Bible and he read scripture to me. He read from Romans uh, chapter 3, for all of sin to fall short of the glory of God. You know? and, and, and he said, yeah, this is what you need now, Hank. And here I was, an eight-year-old boy, and I was listening. And he goes, now you need to pray. So let's pray to Jesus and ask him to forgive you. I did it. Now, I have to tell you that that eight-year-old boy the next morning was not ready to preach, was not ready to testify to the salvation of Christ, could not explain Trinitarian theology, could not differentiate between Wesleyan, Arminian doctrine and Reformed and Calvinist doctrine, couldn't do that. In fact, that eight-year-old did not even yet know how to, how to think and speak in abstract terms. But that work of salvation continued on and on, moment by moment, experience after experience, working itself out in my life and in your life in such a way that now we know more, now we have greater skills, now we have new opportunities, and the salvation of God spreads, and the colors become more and more vibrant. That's happened for each one of you who had that experience. That's happened for me as well. So what God does for us today and every day is he's continuing to just splay out that salvation in beautiful ways. And one of those bands of color is our work. It's our work and how we understand our work. So we could not do that change. We could not facilitate that change. We couldn't make ourselves good enough. But once we've experienced that, we're redefined. Now, for some of you here today, you might go, I would love to have my life redefined because my life right now is a mess and I have not given God ownership of my life. I'm still trying to drive this thing and it's not working very well. And, and if you're there, let me tell you, there's no better day than today to turn your life around and put it in God's hands and say, okay, you do this work. Because what follows is you and God doing great things together. Reshaping, redefining, and changing your life. We cannot do that. We can't do it. But God does that. And, and we can have a deep and profound appreciation for the difference of what happens on the one side of that moment versus what happened prior to that moment. We can appreciate and accept the difference of how we were before we encountered Christ and how we are after. And I look out at this congregation and I see some of you and I remember what you were like two years ago or five years ago. Or I've heard the stories of what you were like 50 years ago. And I know that I'm not the only one that's experienced this. And I know that it would be a crime if I were. 
So that's God's gift. That's what he does for us. And so let's, let's go on from there. If that's what happens, if he does that work of taking us through the blood, taking us through the cross, and redefining and reshaping our lives as now new, recreated, renewed children of God, then we get to respond after that. And our response is how those colors work their way out. It's the working it out. So Paul says at another point in one of his epistles, he says, I'm praying for you Christians, and I'm praying for how you work out your salvation. You talk about confusing us again, because we're trying to deal with we're not saved by works, but then Paul says, but I pray for how you work out your salvation. And so here's my understanding of that. Once that's taken place inside of me, it's got to get out. Once light has gone into the prism, it's got to come out. And how it comes out and where it comes out and just what it looks like and how vibrant it is has something to do with our response. So you might be at a point where in your life you're going, you know, and I just, I just had a conversation about this with someone. It's interesting. You might be at a point in your life where you're going, you know, this is the work I've been doing but I think I'm going to shift gears. I'm going to apply for another job. I'm going to quit doing this work and I'm going to go do that work. And some of us in here have had profound shifts in that regard where I used to do this work. It was an entirely different industry. It was an entirely different job description. And then I trained and I moved and I changed and now I do this work. I have a friend who's a police officer, a good friend of mine is a police officer, and, and he and I were talking a few years ago, and, and I was asking him about his plans, and I was really asking him about whether he would have the chance to go up inside his department and uh, have promotion. And he's had some of that. But as we were talking, he goes, you know, at about 45 or 50, and he's getting really close to that, he said, I'm going to quit doing this. And he reminded me that in that line of work, when you get to be that age, jumping out of speeding cars and running after criminals and tackling to the, them to the ground is not a very good idea. And so he said, you know, most of us retire from the police force about 50 to 55, or we move into an administrative position. And I said, so are you going to do that? Or are you going to, you know, become a desk jockey in the police force? He goes, oh, no. And I said, what are you going to do? And he goes, I'm, I'm going to go back to school. And I'm going to learn another skill. And I'm going to do something different. Because I still want to help people. And I don't want to sit at a desk. Now, I don't know what that's going to be. And I don't think he is sure at this point. But he's exploring and he's thinking about it. Because he recognizes that there's going to be a, a change. And here's the thing. God has given him the opportunity to be part of that change. He's thinking about it. He's making decisions. He's exploring his options. And this I'm confident of. Whatever he decides, God is going to use him in that place. He is going to work and glorify God. That comes with an awareness. That only happens when we're aware of the good great, profound work that God has already done in us. So from a place or an attitude of deep spiritual gratitude, we say, okay, God, I am going to choose 
Not necessarily even what or where, but how I work so that when I work, people see you. So here's what I want to suggest to you. I don't care what work you're doing. There's a way you can do it to bring attention to what God's done in your life. I don't care if you're loading a semi with a forklift and nobody ever sees you go in and out of that truck. The way you do it can somehow glorify God. I may not know how. You may not even understand how it's happening. But if you're doing it from a heart of gratitude, from a heart that has been recreated in Christ, you will make him famous. So, and out of this deep gratitude of saying, God, I'm so appreciative of what you've done for me that I'm going to choose to make decisions. I'm going to choose to work in ways that bring you honor and glory. So I'm, I'm not going to show up late. I'm not going to cheat. I'm not going to take anything from my workplace that isn't mine that I'm not entitled to. I'm not going to take shortcuts that compromise the integrity of what I do. I'm not going to demean people around me I'm not going to be dismissive of them. I'm going to honor God. I'm going to honor those around me like we talked about last week. And in doing so, somebody's going to go, you're a great guy. And we're going to go, no, I've encountered a great God. And so out of that deep spiritual appreciation, we get then to to make a strong spiritual commitment. A lasting spiritual commitment that says, what I do with my time and my energy and my strength, I want it to glorify God. I want it to honor him. That's our response. So I come back to this. Work is a way to make God famous. It's a way to get people's attention and then shift it to the Lord. So just as a prism is transparent. So the light that comes through as a single white ray comes out the other side as multiple colors. A prism also allows a person to look back through the other way because it's transparent. Just like a pane of glass that someone can see through us back to the source. Can trace back to where in the world did this come from that you have this attitude that when everything goes wrong at work, you go, you know what? It's all right. We'll fix this. God will guide us and he will help us and we will make this work. I've told this story before. And, and it's, just, it's a powerful story in my life because it was a moment where I learned so much about the Lord and my family and myself. I was a college student and I was wanting to get my motorcycle license. I, was, I had bought a motorcycle, or I was, actually I was in the process of trying to buy a motorcycle, and I wanted to get my motorcycle license and I wanted to take the licensing exam on a really small motorcycle that was really maneuverable and easy to ride. And my uncle had a little motorcycle. So I called him up and I said, hey, could I borrow your motorcycle to practice and, and get ready and go take the test? And my uncle's a generous, gracious, godly man. And he said, sure, come out and get it. And so I eventually, a day or two later, went out. And he opened his garage and we wheeled the motorcycle out. And I started up, put on a helmet, and I rode home. And over the next few days, with a learner's permit, I rode around town and I was practicing stopping, starting, turning, all these things that you need to be able to do to practice and and, uh, master in order to get your license. 
And over a couple of days, my confidence grew, and I was feeling better about myself, and I, was, I think I'm about ready to, to take my driver's license, my motorcycle license on this. And I was going down the street, and, and the intersection right in front of my parents' home at that point was an unmarked intersection. Now there's a stop sign there. Hmm. But back then there wasn't. And so I was coming to that intersection, and I was kind of tooling along, and my mind was elsewhere, and I was coming into that intersection, and I realized at the last moment there was a car coming. And this was long enough ago that this was a really big car. You know what, I'm, some of you guys are my age. You know what those boats were like in the 1980s, 1970s? And, and this was a 1970s big four-door, and this thing was coming. And it wasn't coming that fast, but it was not stopping. And I was already in the intersection, and I panicked. And in that moment, I, I, you know, I hit the brakes and locked up the front wheel, and it slid out from underneath me. And so now, and I, I would have been doing much better if I'd hit the gas and just shot on through the intersection. But now, I went down, and there I am laying in the intersection, and this little old lady in this huge car is barreling down on me. And she realizes at the last second what's happened and hits the brakes, and literally she comes to stop, and my shoulder's against the front bumper. It just nudged me. And she jumps out and she's crying and she's wailing and she's certain she's killed me because that huge hood obstructs her view and she can't see me and I'm probably underneath the car. Well, I wasn't quite, but I was close. And she gets out and she's distressed and I get up and I dust myself off and I go, ma'am, I am fine. It's okay, you didn't hurt me. And, and I'm relieved and I'm okay that, you know, there are a few scrapes, but that was about it. And so I said, you can go on your way. And then I look across the intersection and there lays my uncle's motorcycle. And it is broken. It has slid across the intersection. And there's pieces laying behind it. And uh, here I am, an 18-year-old, going, oh, my goodness. What do I do? So I picked up the motorcycle. I walked it up into my parents' yard and put the kickstand down. And, looked at and I went inside, and I picked up the phone, and I called my uncle. And I said to my uncle, I laid your motorcycle down. And what happened in the next moments helped me to realize that my uncle had a life that had been profoundly altered and changed by his experience in Jesus Christ. And my uncle was going to treat me and interact with me in a way that had integrity but had an enormous amount of grace. And so on the phone I said, you know, this is what happened. And, and the first thing he said was, are you okay? He didn't say, what did you do to my motorcycle? He didn't say, where did this happen? He said, are you okay? Are you hurt? And I said, I, you know, I think I'm okay, but you know, now that I've come into the house, I'm kind of sore. But I, you know, I'm not bleeding, and I'm all right. And I can walk, I'm okay. And he, then he said, where are you? And I said, I'm a mom and dad's house. Happened right out here in front. And the next thing he said is, I will be right there. So, if you've ever been in a situation like this, you know that now the next 10 minutes are just high anxiety. I will be right there. And so I'm thinking, what is he going to say to me? What is he going to do? What are the repercussions of this? Am I going to be disowned in the family? You know, all these things are going through my head. And my uncle drives up and he gets out of his pickup truck and he walks up to his broken motorcycle and he looks at this and he looks down the side and he goes, show me, show me yourself. So I showed him my jeans were all torn up and and I hadn't noticed it until that point, but the back of my helmet just had all kinds of scratches on it. Fortunately, I had a helmet on. So we looked this over, 
And in that moment, as my uncle is doing this mental evaluation of this whole thing, he looks up at me and he smiles and he says, you're learning how to ride. That was it. And I said, well, what do I need to do? We're going to have to fix this stuff. And we bent some of the pieces back into place right there and we loaded it in the back of his pickup truck and he goes, we'll get it fixed. I never heard, never heard another word from him about that motorcycle to this day. He's still alive. He's 95. And to this day, he has never come back and said, you know what it cost me to fix that motorcycle? Never heard a word. I've gone to him and said, Uncle, you fixed that motorcycle. You never told me what I owed. And he doesn't say anything. He just kind of pushes me away. And in a young man's life, that was a moment when I realized that his life was not defined by what he owned, but by who he loved. You see, God said through the Apostle Paul that God has great plans, good deeds that are planned in advance for us to do. So here's what I think is just profound. As I think back on that situation between me and Uncle Johnny, I think, you know, there was a moment in time when God did some things in his life when he responded because God wanted him to be ready when I tore up his motorcycle. Somehow God helped him to experience forgiveness and mercy and grace and love so that there, when, there, when I had destroyed his property, that he would go, you're just learning to ride. You see, we are created for those kinds of moments. And we are recreated through the power of salvation in Jesus Christ for those kinds of moments. There will come a moment for you this week when you will get to respond to someone to work in some way that will either draw that person closer to Christ or drive them farther away. My prayer for us is that we become the kind of people that repetitively, over and over and over again, by our ethic and our actions, we continually draw people closer and closer and closer to Christ. Because we've been created and recreated in the image of Christ to do those kinds of good works. Paul says he prepared those things for us in advance. So here's here's the thing. If you really want to be blown away by this, you go, you know, there are things coming this week that God has been working on in your life for some time. And he has been rewiring and remapping things. He's been changing your attitude. He's been changing your heart. He's been renewing your spirit. He's been strengthening your body. He's been getting you ready. Or he's been bringing you to a place of fatigue or weakness. Because there's a moment coming that he has prepared you for. And you're ready. He has prepared these good deeds in advance for us. And I think in those moments, we get to see things go the way God wants them to. That's when things go as God desires. So I look back on that moment with my uncle and I recognize that that was a holy moment partly because God had worked in his heart and his life for decades before that moment, and partly because at that moment, his response was so significant to me, I have never forgotten it. 
And instead of forgetting it, I have chosen to reshape my life in that way. And so I got to tell you, that night when I went to bed and I was really sore by that night, I laid there and I thought, that's the guy I want to be. I remember laying there in bed and go, that's the guy I want to be. I want to be that guy. When life around me just comes apart, when people do things that make me pay, I want to be the kind of guy that goes, okay, now we're learning. Now we're learning. And fortunately, because God is good and God is great, he has done that with multiple people in my life. It was my father, it was my uncle, it was my friends, it was my church family, it was my wife, it's my my daughter. And multiple people that God has interacted with who have experienced him have come into my life and have brought a presence in my life that has reshaped me and caused me time and time and again to say, I'm going to be a different person because I just learned something. Because I just experienced something and the way I do things tomorrow gets changed. So you're going to have a moment this week. It may come today. You're going to have a moment where somebody's going to do something, somebody's going to say something, and you can choose to lash out and shove them away or you can choose to find the love of God, and draw them closer. You can choose to condemn them and point out their misdeeds and call it evil, or you can choose to bring them to a place where evil misdeeds get transformed by the power of forgiveness. That's it. That's it. You can choose to dismiss something that shouldn't have been done or you can choose to correct it. And so my prayer for you this week is when that moment comes, you'll recognize it and you will be ready because God has done the work in you so that you can work to make him famous. Amen. Come on up, band. Let's pray. We will.